You ready for some bounty info? I'll take it. an old-fashioned cowboy. You're a bounty hunter. We'd like you to come along with us. He got away! Watch your back! I'm not a criminal. That makes me sound more like a criminal. It's complicated to be an outlaw nowadays. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. Our season might be over, but that doesn't mean we're not watching movies and having fun. And in this special episode of uh, Heroic Purgatory, we'll be talking about the 1998 anime Cowboy Bebop. Um, in preparation for the new release of the live-action Netflix. But of course, I will not be alone in talking about this. With me, as always, will be my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, John. Ready to jam. How are you? And I'm John. I messed up the introduction today, but that's okay, because it's a special episode. The rules don't apply. Absolutely. We're going to freeform this, freestyle this. Uh, It's going to be like jazz. Yes, yes. Space cowboys don't abide by any rules. Absolutely. We're on the new frontier, guys. Brace yourselves. Okay. So, and we'll talk about everything in this episode. We'll talk about the 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 episode. We might talk about the live action adaptations. We'll talk about the original episodes. We might talk about the movie. We might talk about the live action adaptations. We might talk about inspirations, sources, references, etc. But before we get into any of that, Jason, what have you been doing since last time we've spoken? So other than enjoying Cowboy Bebop, the TV anime and the movie, uh, I've been trying to get back into writing um, and I published a review for Whiplash of the Dead, which I mentioned in the last uh, podcast episode. Uh, so that's part of the Yamagata International Film Festival. And um uh, I got some positive feedback from it, and the director actually retweeted it as well, so I was quite pleased to see. Uh, That's nice. Yeah, it's always nice to uh, see uh, people take notice of the work. And I'm working on uh, a final review for uh, the Yamagata International Film Festival um, called Yamagata City of Film, which is about the first ever uh, film festival in the city, uh, which took place in 1989, 1988. Um, Ah, it's called A Movie Capital, and it was released in 1991. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that film. Um, so uh, a review hopefully is inbound next week. So so just to clarify, this is, is this a movie about the Yamagata International Festival taking place at the Yamagata International Festival? Absolutely. It's a documentary recording the first ever Yamagata International Film Festival. And so you've got directors from around the world descending upon Japan in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I can't remember when exactly it's set. I'm going to have to look at my notes again. But um, uh, yeah, you see uh, glimpses of documentaries at the time, um, current events like the Tiananmen Square um, protests and the uh, tank man. And uh, it's sort of, um, it's a really affirming film. It's like, 
this is why film festivals should exist to bring people together to show special works and this is uh like you see the connections that are made between audiences and the filmmakers themselves uh, as uh, you get impromptu q and a's you get interviews um, where people are talking passionately about things and you're also able to see that a film festival can create a space where controversial subjects, um, things that might be banned in other countries, can be screened for audiences so people can better understand what's going on around the world. Yeah. And just to slightly speak, just to, just to make that slightly more privileged point as critics, there's an added benefit wherein you may get to meet the filmmakers or people that are involved within the industry and talk with them, get more insight, and of course, ideally write about them. Absolutely. Like uh, film festivals, uh, just so if you're a cinephile, if you just like movies, they're a wonderful space to be in and you meet so many creative people. So yeah, I'm looking forward to writing up that review. Uh, uh, in terms of what I've been viewing, I've tried to get back into movies. Um, so I watched the South Korean um, thriller, Hide and Seek, which was on Amazon Prime. Came out in 2013. And uh, it's, I find it enjoyable, actually. It's, I think it's only got a rating of 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, it goes in, it starts off with like a horror aesthetic um, and uh, like uh, many horror tropes as you see uh, this masked figure um, attack a woman and then you get into a mystery about this man and his brother and what happened to them in the past and it goes in completely unexpected directions there's a home invasion element to it into uh so i watched it like uh two o'clock in the morning and uh because i couldn't get any sleep and i was just riveted by it uh also uh going to watch uh ghost in the shell the live action movie uh with scarlett johansson that's on amazon prime for free in the uk so uh, maybe I might write a review about that. Yeah, I think we, we talked about this offline, of the air. And I think I remember I checked at the time and he wasn't available in the US. Is that, I think that's what I said. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but I mean, I can still, I'm sure I can find it out. I can, I can get access to it somehow. But, uh, uh, or maybe it is in the US. I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember what exactly what I said, but it's, it's, it's so low on my priorities <laughs> to watch that I... I definitely did not make a mental note of it or anything like that to say, yeah, I have to watch this. Yeah, I, I think uh, when we did our Ghost in a Shell episode, I expressed uh, indifference to actually watching the adaptation. So uh, it's been on the back burner for a number of years. Now is the time to watch it. I think I was living in Japan at the time it was released. And I, I remember advertisements for it. Anyway, um, that's about it as far as uh, films go. Um in terms of uh, video games, I finished playing Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, the main campaign, uh, on my PS Vita. And I'm doing post-game quests, and uh, I'm considering getting Darkest Dungeon and XCOM uh, for the PS Vita as well. And um, in terms of books, I'm reading Hokkaido Highway Blues, which is the, uh, the uh, journals of a Canadian teacher who's um, hitchhiking from the southernmost islands of Japan all the way to Hokkaido in the north, and uh, his experiences on each of the islands as he is determined to hitchhike, and um, he meets a variety of different people that way. And so far, it's become a bit of a psychodrama about how um, alienated he feels being in Japan as a foreigner. And um, yeah, it's uh, at times it's very bitter. <laughs> is it, uh, was it just 
I'm just making this comment right only based on the title, but was uh, watching Cowboy Bebop inspire you to pick up this book or was it unrelated to that? Oh, no, it was unrelated to it. Uh, it's a book ah, I see. a friend in work gave me uh, a while ago and uh, I was due to going to hospital for an operation. So I decided, oh, no, it's time to uh, read it. And uh, yeah, I managed to get through quite a, lot, quite a lot of the book while I was waiting for an operation. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Anything else? Uh that's uh, oh yeah i've also got the bells of old tokyo uh travels in japanese time by anna sherman uh ready to read after hokkaido highway blues and that's about it as far as uh, my media goes how about you uh so i am also i just started reading a book 1984 believe it or not i've never read it okay i have seen both the 50s movie adaptation and the 80s movie adaptation i'm, I'm quite fond of the 80s movie adaptation directed by um uh, what's his name? That's the one with John Hurt, right? Yes, and it was released in 1984. Uh, Michael Radford, and he also did Il Postino. I think that's the most famous movie that he's the uh, the movie that he's most famous for. Uh, but, but, but I think in 1984 might have been his debut directorial his directorial debut. And it's quite a nice, quite a good movie. And the 50s one is interesting. But I've I'd never read the book, so I just figured you know uh, might as well. I this is unrelated to a to media consumption, but I also got a cat recently. Oh, uh, actually, shortly after we spoke, so that I've been busy with her trying to train her, and well, she's she was kind of already trained, but you know, trying to get her used to the house and all that. Uh, what's her name? A Millie. Millie. Okay. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Any particular reason? No, I you know, I was planning to get a cat. Uh, for a long time, but I always lived in an apartment that didn't allow pets. And I'm finally, you know, last since I moved, which we've talked about, is I now my apartment does allow pets. Uh, uh, and so I figured, you know, why not? Uh, and I did a little bit of research because I tend to sort of overthink things. So I did a little research about how what's the best environment for kennel that. So that kind of delayed things a bit. And I also have a hamster. I have had a, I've had a hamster for a long time. Okay. Uh, and uh, of course, being a rodent and having a cat in the house, that's, there's a, a recipe for disaster right there. But so far, I think it's been very manageable. Was, uh, Tom and Jerry managed to forge quite a close relationship by the time the movies came around. Yes, <laughs> which I don't think I've ever seen. I've, I've seen the 90s movie where they are out to rescue a girl. I haven't seen the latest one. I might have. I, I would be. Uh, I would bet there are more than one movie. There's probably movies even before the 90s one. I th I'm pretty sure, I, I I would be surprised if I haven't seen the 90s one, but I don't remember it at the moment. Yeah, my sister used to love that show, so I watched it over and over again. So, uh, one one movie <laughs> I watched on Halloween, I was just uh, on actual Halloween now, and I was just kind of looking for a, like a, a, a cheesy, cheap, like a, a, a bad movie to watch. About and I watched a vampire horror film on Amazon Prime called Black as Night. I've never heard of that. It's it's a one of those you know direct to video movies that is you know unknown actors, unknown directors, and all that. And it's a not not a great movie, but it is a supposed to be like a teen vampire hunting uh, comedy, and it's supposed to also have some racial overtones in oh. it because it takes place in New Orleans. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's terrible, but it was a fun watch. Uh, other New Orleans vampire movies, uh, what is it called? Interview with a Vampire? Okay, which I haven't seen. I sure With that's Brad on. Pitt and uh, Willem Dafoe, right? Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah. Christian Slater, and a young Kirsten Dunst, and Antonio Banderas. 
isn't that the one where it's supposed to be like a behind the scenes of filming Nosferatu or no? No, that's the one uh, with Willem Dafoe. Where... Oh, okay. What's that one called? I can't remember. Is that a low budget British movie? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen either of them. I, <laughs> I remember watching that one on BBC4. Yeah, but I remember one of them is about that. Uh, so what else? I, I watched, uh, this was not the first time, but it's been a long time since I watched this, is uh, the, sh- the sitcom The IT Crowd. Oh, classic, classic. Yes, and I haven't seen it almost. I saw it, I think, very shortly after the last season. I think I caught the last season on TV, which made me seek out, I think it's four seasons. Uh, and I think the last season was in 2010. And I think that's where I sort of became familiar with the series. Hmm. And I think I watched it, you know, no, shortly after that. So, you know, early 2010s is when I first watched it. And I, and, uh, I haven't seen it since then. So I revisited it. I'm, all, I'm not quite done with it. I'm, I'm on the fourth season right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's as good as I remember it. It, it hasn't, it, it still holds up. And it's actually, so the, the one guy, so one of the stars, Richard Aoyadi, he is, I like everything that he's done. Mm. He, he did, uh, he created a, a, a series called Garth Marenghi's Dark, Dark Place. Place. Yeah. Yes, he co-created that one, which is a fantastic series. It's, a, it's only a se- one season, but it's, you know, you don't really need any more. It's like a one-off thing. Yeah. A, he did, he, he, you know, he, he directed a bunch of, you know, various, he was involved, I think, in The Mighty Boosh. Uh, show yeah. uh, and he was um, he directed two movies which I thought were fantastic uh, Submarine I, I watched that one in the cinema what's the other one? Uh, the Double The du- oh okay with um, the actor in Zombieland yeah the what's his name the guy who was also in the social network is it Jace, Jesse Eisenberg, Eisenberg yes. yeah Yes, and I mean uh, Submarine is fantastic in my opinion it's a great great movie uh, the double is, I think, a more ambitious project, and I don't think it quite stuck the landing as well. Yeah, but I still thought it was for you know an indie, his first attempt at whole. But I think it was uh, American produced that movie, whereas his first one was uh, was a, a British movie. It was actually a Welsh movie. I don't know. I don't know if you thought it was a good representation of Wales, but yeah, I felt like uh, I re- actually reviewed it on my blog, um, and I'm pretty sure. The girl in the movie reminded me of like my classmates at the time. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was a fantastic movie. But he hasn't done anything since. I mean, he's still active as an actor on mostly small roles. He's done a lot of voice acting, but he hasn't done anything big since the double, like, which was in two thousand thirteen. Yeah, he's appearing uh, on like um, uh, ch- uh, uh, TV quizzes as a host. Yeah, or a, guest. a lot of game shows and travel shows. It seems to be like the the things to do for. British comedy stars nowadays. Yeah. But I don't know, like, cause he was, I, he was so talented, like in the early 2000s up to the movies that he did, he, you know, he was just amazing, brimming with talent in both writing and directing. So I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know why he's kind of giving it up, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, I mean, he's been writing books also, he's been writing books about movies and stuff. So, and I might pick up some of them one of these days. And read them because I've heard they're quite good. But otherwise, I'd, I'd love to see him do more stuff. Either do more stuff on TV or, you know, on direct another movie. Absolutely. No, big fans of his and my household as well. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the last thing is I've been watching, uh, you know, Cowboy Bebop. I, I took my time with it. That's why, you know, this episode is coming out a week later than it would have otherwise. Uh, but I also, you know, 
caught up with the first two episodes of the new live action series. Okay. And uh, eager to hear what you have to say. I'll talk about it. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's why I'm, I'm, I teased it in the intro, but <laughs> I, did, I did watch. I only had time to watch a couple of episodes. Uh, and I, I will finish it. So that's I, I think that's an indication of you know where I stand that I will definitely finish the watch finish the season. Okay. But I think that's it for my media consumption. I'm sure I did more stuff, but I just I, I can't remember right. I don't write this stuff down. That's why I would I should start writing it down in preparation for episodes, but I don't. So that's always a downside. All right. So I think that's a, that's it for our media consumption section. Next we go into our news segment for the episode. And Jason, I believe you have some news for us. Yeah, so um, Japan Society in New York are running a season of films called Flash Forward, which uh, contains the debut works and recent works of a number of notable Japanese directors. Um, So it's in two parts. Uh, One part is dedicated to Sadao Yamanaka, and uh, two of his films will be shown uh, in person at the Japan Society's auditorium. And uh, tickets cost $15 for non-members, and I think $10 for members. And uh, these are recently restored, uh, like 4K restorations of uh, two of his free surviving works. Uh, Sadao Yamanaka is uh, a contemporary of Ozu, and um, I think he was uh, in China uh, as part of the Japanese army at the same time. And um, he actually died tragically young due to uh, disease, I believe. But uh, people may know him from Humanity and Paper Balloons. Um, I think that was like the first of his works to be brought to attention. Uh, two of his other works, uh, the ones that are being played by Japan Society uh, in their cinema, uh, Tange Sazen and A Pot Worth a Million Ryo and uh, Priest of Darkness. And um, these were at the Tokyo International Film Festival last year. So they're finally getting um, their international premiere at uh, Japan Society. I'm looking at uh, his uh, at some of his info, and it is uh, uh, he died quite young, and he died quite early. Yeah, he might have been, you know, he might have been been better known had he uh, lived a bit longer. But unfortunately, he, you know, he died in Manchuria. Yeah, I uh, like uh, uh, the season bills him as um, like a guy who revolutionized sort of um, historical movies uh, and. Uh, the films that have survived are really well regarded, so this is a great chance to see them. Do you know if they're sound films or silent films? Because at the time, I mean, Japan was still making silent films. Like a lot of the Ozu 30s films are, are silent films. Well, the early 30s, so I, uh, I don't know if these are silent or sound films. Uh, ah, as in with a Benshi. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. It doesn't, from the description, it doesn't say silent, so I'm assuming they are sound films. Yeah. Okay, I'm. I, I might. Uh, I'll. I'll try to. I, I'll save that link. So it looks. It looks an interesting thing. I'd be curious to. Some like two of them clicking them. They all seem to be Jidaiki films. Yeah, I think uh, like all of his surviving films are like historical dramas. Yeah, and uh, yeah, modern day filmmakers take inspiration for him. Like I've been uh, going to the Osaka Asian Film Festival for like uh, since 2017, and um, in each of the years. There's been one particular Korean filmmaker who's brought experimental movies where Sadao Yamanaka, uh, Yasujiro Ozu, and um, Setsuko Hara are characters. And um, you can see uh, like snippets of uh, Yamanaka's films or Ozu's films in like the experimental films this Korean filmmaker's made. So he still holds uh, an influence. 
And uh, the second part of uh, Flash Forward uh, is, are works by more contemporary directors, um, such as Shuichi Okita um, and uh, 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 Kawase. Ah, what's the name? What's the name? I've met her. Uh, Naomi Kawase, uh, Junji Sakamoto. Um, so these are all going to be streaming online. Oh, and Miwa Nishikawa as well. It's probably one of the greatest uh, filmmakers in Japan uh, working right now. And uh, yeah, uh, prices are $10 for three-day rental of each of the films and $55 for a season pass. So that's pretty good value for many. Oh, so just to clarify, is the Sadao Yamanaka focus online as well, or is that in person only? That's in person at uh, Japan Society's Auditorium. So ah, that's unfortunate. You have to be in New York. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, although you know, I'm sure any any interested me- members of the audience should be able to find his films. Uh, like I would assume they have been released in some form or other. I know um, Humanity and Paper Balloons. I, I actually have a, a version of that, the Masters of Cinema version. I'm not sure about the other two, but um, I'm pretty sure I managed to find one on YouTube last year when I was um, writing about Tokyo International Film Festival. Well, even if they haven't, I think I would imagine that, well, so Humanity in the Paper Balloons is available on the Criterion channel in the US. Uh, I'm not seeing the other two, but uh, but I'm sure since they're being shown on uh, Japan society, that's usually an indication that there is some restored version probably that will eventually be released. And that's probably what this is for, I'm guessing. Yeah, you can imagine this is a lead up to an announcement by Criterion. Yeah, or or, or equivalent, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's about it for news. Um, If I had to give any recommendations for the films, um, definitely Wild Berries and The Long Excuse by Miwa Nishikawa. Like, uh, I really love those two films. They move me to tears. Um, The Projects by Junji Sakamoto is a nice comedy of manners. uh, it shows you what everyday life is like in uh, uh, a danshi, uh, public housing in Japan. And then it goes off on a really weird tangent at the end. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, those those are the three recommendations I have. Yeah. And there's, you know, in the US, it's the next week. Well, we're recording this on the Sunday and the, the following week is a is thanks, what we call here Thanksgiving break. So I'll certainly have time, at least one or two days off of work, to um, to check out and maybe do some uh, browsing on Japan Society to to watch one or two of these movies. Absolutely. Hope you enjoy. Yeah. All right. So I think that was it for our news segment, and that means we can jump straight into our discussion of the 1998 anime series cowboy bebop uh so jason why don't you i mean i i I would imagine this is too long for a plot in summary but why don't you give us like a summary of the series overall (laughs) a summary of the series okay well uh the series takes place in the year 2071 and humanity has spread out into the solar system colonies on mars and venus the moons of saturn and jupiter and vast empty tracts of space act as the backdrop for this new generation of pioneers with newfound freedom comes newfound criminal opportunities, which crime syndicates and chances are keen to exploit. And this is where our protagonists step in. We follow the adventures of Spike and Jet, an ex-gangster and a retired cop with a mechanical arm. 
This eternally cash-strapped duo have formed a partnership in bounty hunting where they track down and cash in a variety of space outlaws. They will later be joined by Faye Valentine, a devious femme fatale, Ed, an eccentric hacker, and Ayn, a super-intelligent data dog who might be smarter than his human companions. Together on jet ship the Bebop, they get into adventures on the final frontier. All right. Thank you for that summary, Jason. So as always, why don't we start with... Um, you know what's what's your inter- what's your history with the series? When did you become acquainted with it? What did you think of it? What do you think of it now, etc.? So uh, I first saw it in the UK on a channel called CNX, which is like the UK equivalent of Adult Swim, and this was in two thousand and two, and it would come on at like uh, nine o'clock, and it was paired with another show called Outlaw Star. Uh like Bebop felt more unique and special than Outlaw Star. Um, and I think it was thanks to like its, uh, like the maturity of its storylines, um, the multicultural atmosphere and the cool characters and all the movie references. So Teenage Me was absolutely lapping this up. And, uh, I so wanted to be Spike Spiegel as a teenager. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> I, I think every, everybody goes through that phase when they watch Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. So, well, the the true litmus test is: Did you watch it dubbed or subbed? Ah, I watched it dubbed with Steve Bloom. Ah, and that's and I tried watching it subbed uh, for this podcast, but I will always return to the dub because the ADR script and like the voice acting is just perfect. They lean into the characters, they imbue them with so much life and style. Uh, like it's just etched into my memories. And um, after watching the anime, I just had to buy the DVDs and the CD soundtracks. And when my mother told me there was a movie and it was on um, uh, video on demand on television, I watched it and then I had to get the movie. And um, it's it's a special anime. It's one that's uh, like left a deep imprint on me, but it's not one I often return to. Um, I only return to it. Uh, only returned to a few episodes like uh, Piero Lefou and Sympathy for the Devil just to watch them over and over again. Uh, but whenever I think about Cowboy Bebop, like moved, especially like the final three episodes. Did Did you watch the movie for in preparation for this podcast? Oh, no, I saw the movie uh, uh, around the time of its UK release. So it okay, was- so you, ha- you haven't seen the movie recently? Oh, no, I watched the movie again for the podcast because I have it on DVD. Oh, okay. I, I was not able to watch the movie because uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. Really? I don't have a DVD of it, but yeah, so the, uh, well, I, I'm sure I could have found a DVD of it, but I didn't want to pay extra. So I, the, the series, I mean, the series is available, the anime is available in several platforms online, but the movie, at least in the US, uh, I did not find it streaming. It wasn't streaming anywhere. Think- not on Netflix, not on Hulu, not on Prime. Yeah, Sony owns the rights. And- they released it through let me check the back of the box yeah columbia tristar home entertainment so yeah they have a uh distribution deal with netflix don't they i don't know but it's definitely the movie is definitely not available on netflix like i'm looking at it right now and it's it's the of course they have the anime because obviously they got the rights for the uh for the live action but not the movie okay yeah and Hulu, the same thing. Hulu has the anime, but not the movie. And Prime, I think, is neither. And uh, 
And I checked a bunch of others. I checked I checked a database of all subscription services, and the movie was not streaming anywhere in the U.S. So I could not. And you know, I of course I could have paid. Well, it was not anywhere to buy digitally. I would have have to buy the DVD and have it shipped to me. And I I just didn't feel like uh, I didn't feel like doing that. That's strange. Is it like some sort of licensing issue? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. So if any if anybody if I missed any part where the movie might be available and I just wasn't aware, you know, let us know in the comments or something. But yeah, I could not I could not get access to it. What? Yeah. Well. The focus of this discussion is the TV anime. Um, I will confirm that the movie is fantastic. Extra big budget and extra work on the animation and um, a brilliant sort of standalone story. Yeah. So uh, just to go to my history with the series, unless you have anything else to add, Jason, about your your uh, your part with it. Oh, no, that's how I got into Cowboy Bebop. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I, I was aware because I, I knew of people... I, I had people in my social circles that I had seen it and then had mentioned it once or twice, but it's not, it was never an anime that someone said, oh, you have to watch it for some reason, even though people who have seen it usually regard it highly, but it's not like, you know, Death Note where everybody you meet and uh, has seen Death Note says, oh, you have to watch Death Note because it's so awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so my actual decision to watch it is a bit pretentious. I was reading an article somewhere and I forget where I, I, I try to find it again, but I think the guy who, the person who wrote the blog about this is probably taken down because this was, this was in the early 2010s. I might've been even 2010, 2011, who wrote a blog about sort of like existentialism in, in Japanese media. And it was mostly about sort of Kurosawa's later films like uh, um, Kagemusha and Ren uh, and even Der Suzala, but it also mentioned some modern media and Cowboy Bebop came up as uh, several times as sort of an example of sort of modern Japanese media that's kind of like tackled the issue of existentialism. And that sort of, yay, you know, I will, this sounds interesting, so I'll watch it. And I was sort of blown away by the first episode. Mm. It was so, and it's not even, you know, now up on rewatches, it's not even the best episode in the series. I don't think it even makes the top 10 even though it is a great episode, but it was just so different, so unique that it sort of became quickly my favorite anime. Yeah, I, uh, my, like with Shinichiro Watanabe, he's the director, with his anime, I tend to find it takes me a couple episodes to get into it. So for me, it was Stray Dog Strut, where the comedy really came out. Yeah, no, no, for me it was right away, sort of the first episode was, okay, yes, this is different. This is kind of like, and it was again, at the time I was very much, I was reading about existentialism as I was interested in, in that sort of entire sort of philosophy and school of thought. So that, that, I think that might have been a big reason why the, the episode really appealed to me. Yeah. Uh, and sort of like the, the overall aesthetic and the overall, you know, what the series is trying to accomplish. Uh, it just immediately appealed to me. And uh, and sort of like I kind of watched it. I just binged it, like the like we say today. Even though I don't think that was in the vocabulary at the time, uh, binged watched it. And it's so easy to do that because each of the episodes is like less than twenty five minutes long. Exactly, exactly. And I'll we'll get to that point a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, so I, I watched it, and actually I watched it sub because I knew nothing about the quality of the dub, and I agree with you that the quality of the dub is really great. A lot. It's sort of, I think, the gold standard, in my opinion, of how anime should be dubbed. Not all of them follow that standard, but you know, some, there, are, there are other examples of that. 
But at the time it was still, I was just operating under the default assumptions that subbed is always better than dubbed. So I watched a dub and actually the, I have seen, I've seen, I've seen episodes of it dubbed since then, but this, oh, this rewatch that I did in preparation for this podcast was the, for, the first time that I watched the whole series dubbed. Yeah. Uh, so, but before that, I've, I've mostly seen it subbed. Yeah. I, and uh, this is like the, the Japanese voice actors are putting good performances, but there's like, as you said, the quality of the writing and the acting is just phenomenal. And, and like my experience with talking uh, with other anime fans is like, uh, this is the one that got them into anime. Um, it's like the, sort of the gateway title. And it's one that you can easily recommend to others to get them into anime as well, to show them what is capable. I would say, going back to the dubbed versus sub issue, I would say that like this is not the default. This is an exception. But I think Cowboy Bebop is better dubbed than subbed. Is it is it because there's a sort of international feel to it, or galactic in this well, case? That, that, that too, but I would argue that, you know, maybe it is better subbed, perhaps for Japanese viewing, but the dubbed, I think they capture the mood so well yeah. that it adds an extra layer into sort of the overall, the overall sort of aesthetic of the show that you just can't at least I cannot get with a subbed version because I, I just don't understand Japanese. I, there's the, the nuance, the entire nuance of whatever voice acting provides into a show like this is kind of lost on me in the Japanese, which, which I'm sure is also great, the acting, the Japanese voice acting. I'm sure it's great for a Japanese speaker, but for me, it just there's an element there that is just not coming through, but it comes through perfectly in the dub because I think I, if I had to make a guess, I think they didn't just hire good voice actors, but they hired people who directed the voice acting, the people who directed the voice acting, really examining the anime in Japanese and sort of really were able to capture the essence of what those, uh, those actors need to sort of accomplish with their, with their roles. Yeah, I, I just, like, one scene that um, comes back to me from the movie, which shows, like, the, the Japanese is like, the standard it feels like the standards and then the dub feels like they're really leaning into the characters to imbue them with uh like a style and panache and the scene i keep coming back to in the movie is um, when spike is fighting electra uh like a, a, a sexy tough girl character or she's just, she's a tough girl character and uh he's got a few cheeky lines uh that uh you know jean-paul belmondo might say he's like uh uh you uh you look good in a red and black uh, Toreador outfit, and uh, <laughs> I like a girl who can kick my ass. Whereas, like uh, watching the um, subtitles, it's I like a girl who could kill me. <laughs> it's like the 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 extra sort of spice to the ADR dub really brings the characters to life. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. So, just going back to sort of impressions, there was. I, I I feel like my impression of the series has changed over time. I it still it was my favorite anime. It still might be my favorite anime. I've seen a few more now since then, so so it's it might not be my absolute favorite, but it's still one of my favorites. However, the reasons I liked it and what I like about it have changed. I don't know if it's the same for you or if it's exactly what you found appealing about it initially, you still is exactly the same thing that you find appealing about it. 
yeah, as I said earlier, as a teenager, I wanted to be Spike Spiegel, and I was kind of convinced I could pull it off because I'm sort of like similar build. My hair can be pretty wild, and um, I'm mildly athletic, <laughs> and you know, just wanting to ooze that coolness. Um, I still feel that draw to him as well. I still appreciate uh, his story, but what's really deepened is my appreciation of. Um, Oh, and I also, I was able to get into Faye's story as well, because that's just a huge part of the original show, and um, like looking for her place in the galaxy, and as a teenager, going through similar emotions. Um, but what deepened uh, with my rewatch as an adult is like seeing the bonds that form between characters, even though they're putting up a facade, like a tough guy act, or... Uh, you know, like in the case of Faye, uh, like a con woman and, you know, seeing how it all crumbles towards the end, like all these deep human emotions well up. And also like the world building where it keeps coming back to a critique of unfettered capitalism and like a day to day struggles to do something as like simple as pay the bills and put food on the table, as well as like all the multicultural aspects. But don't you think? Uh, well, well, yeah. The the first part. Don't you think that the show also romanticizes that a little bit? Sort of the struggle, the day to day struggle. Yeah, it's it's kind of like with Nomadlands. It's kind of like there's the freedom, and yeah. that that's romanticized. And I guess that's a key part of like the Western setting of the anime itself. That this is a new frontier, and they can do uh, anything they want. There's freedom out there. But the anime always comes back to they're trying to find a place. They've got a past that's like a, a, a millstone around their neck and um, they're struggling to survive day to day. So it's not easy. So so let's yeah. So just to go back to your earlier point. Yes, me too. I wanted to be like Spike uh, uh, when I was younger. However, I, as, as I've rewatched, and I've watched, I think, a total of four times, including this most recent rewatch, the entire show from beginning to, to, to end. Uh, in addition to, I, I, I haven't done a lot what I would just watch a random episode in the middle. I mostly uh, done when I started, I'll just, you know, watch the entire series. Uh, I liked, you know, I, that, that sort of decreased. And actually, in the most recent rewatch, I came to the conclusion that Spike is a bit of an asshole. Uh, yeah, like the, like, the final two episodes and his actions really hammers home that, like, yeah, there's a selfishness to him. It is very selfish. And I think the, the episode, and I don't think this is a flaw in the show. I think it's a subtle sort of way of the, the show realizing that part because it's, you know, it makes you think that it's all about, and spoilers, we're going to, I mean, our discussion is going to be nonlinear while we move back and forth. So there's always a chance for spoilers while we mention. But obviously, the, the entire, until those final episodes, and actually I would make the point that this is obvious before that, but before, but it makes the point that it's all about his love for Julia. Yeah, it's such a big part of each episode. But it isn't. I would say that it, the final episode reveals that it isn't. It isn't. It's his selfish need for revenge. Yeah, it's, and when what happens to Julia happens to Julia, he's got such a flat response to it. It's like, yeah. And it's oh, it happened. That's his response. It's kind of like you're a monster. Exactly, and I think in that case, maybe even he realized that. But let me let me make another argument, and if you agree, that I would say that becomes abundantly obvious before before then, and I would argue it becomes obvious in the episode Pierrot Lefou mm. because he does exactly. I think 
that's one of my favorite episodes. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite episodes for many reasons. But I think one reason, one thing that that episode does, it, it reveals Spike's obsessive personality. Mm. Because he sort of does the same thing there where he has a chance to walk away that he has nothing to gain from going to that invitation that Piero sends him other than a satisfaction of his sort of personal sense of revenge. Yeah. That he needs to take him out. It's not just that he needs to, it's not a sense of justice, it's not a sense of protection because there's just, he's nothing, it's just his pride has been hurt and he needs to sort of bring closure to himself in order to do it. I don't know, I had a different reading. I felt like there was a fatalism to his actions in that episode because he knows Piero's on his case and he senses that Piero's not going to give up. So he has to... But Piero can't leave the planet. Piero has been there for years, for years, maybe decades, I don't know, not decades, but years. And he's not, you know, he's not going to come after him. It's just, and yes, there is that. I agree that there is the sort of the whole dialogue that they say that whoever has seen him never survives and everything. But I don't know. It's still, I think it's just that I don't think that's necessarily why he does it. It just, it did, I just didn't read it that way. I think it's, it's he, he could have justified walking away, but that's just not his personality. Well, that I would have loved if he'd walked away with Julia at the very end, because it's kind of like this whole show is like he has to submit to his fate and he has to have like the big confrontation with Vicious. And if he just like broken that, I would have loved it. Like James Bond at the end of Spectre, I refuse to watch um, No Time to Die because like the end of Spectre is perfect. James Bond gets the girl, beats the bad guys, and he's like, I'm sick and tired of this job, I'm going. But um, yeah. to, to go back to your original point, um, like his obsession and his pride, that comes out in the episode Cowboy Funk, where there's like a, a sort of mirror image of him with Cowboy, is it Cowboy Andy? The bounty hunter? Uh, yes, that's immediately the next episode. Yeah, and that really hammers home the actually, yeah, like it, it's a comedy episode, but there there is that obsessive quality to him that he like once he's slighted, he has to oh like uh, outdo his opponent. So let me let me continue that point that I think Spike is an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> and make make a a uh, something that I I think will because I don't think saying Spike is an asshole is a very controversial because we do like assholes on TV. We do like these type of anti-heroes. But let me make another point that I think is going to be a little bit more controversial. So, when I first the first the very first time that I watched the show, I think my favorite part was the spy arc. I think every episode is great. There are there are let's just I think there are generally three kinds of episodes that the show is is made of. There is the this episodes that are about Spike's arc. There are the stand the episode. There are the episodes that are about the the personal lives of the supporting characters. If you if you call them supporting characters, because I do think they are supporting characters. It doesn't mean they're not important. But I think Spike is the clear protagonist. And then there's Jed, there's Faye, and there is Ed, and there's I guess Ayn. You could. Uh, you could call you could also consider him as a character. I think that's the second type of episode that deals with them. And then the thirds are the standalone episodes. And the the I I love the episodes that were about Spike. His arc, which is, you know, I think the first episode is the Battle um um Ballad of Fallen Angels. Ballad of Fallen Angels. I think that's the first episode that we actually get where we do get a glimpse. Before then I think there's 
And I think that's episode five, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And before that, there's no indication. I mean, there's hints and there's conversation that he has with Jed, especially I think in the first episode, they have like a very like short exchange about, you know, why should I tell you about my past when you won't tell me about your arm or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, there's definitely hints, but that's, I think the first episode. And then there's just a few episodes that are scattered. And then there's the final two episodes that finally conclude Spike's arc. Um, as, as I have progressed, and especially in the, in the last rewatch, I've gotten less and less interested in Spike's arc. And in the least rewatch, I, I almost, almost wanted to skip those episodes uh, because I was, I was just not interested in them. And I, I honestly, I will say something that might be considered sacrilegious. I think Vicious is a terribly written villain. Oh, he's definitely one note. Is like exactly what's his motivation? Exactly, I think he's a very, very stereotypical, uninteresting, and uninspired villain. I f- yeah, I feel like Cowboy Bebop the movie tries to rectify that with its own villain who has a similar background to Vicious. Interesting, but it's more about his trauma on the war on Titan and uh, his hatred for uh, humanity. I guess you could say. Uh, that informs him, and so it's like a deeper character to get into. Yeah, but I don't think, I guess I don't think they spend, if they only have one episode that deals with the Warring Titan, there's not even, like, the Warring Titan is not even mentioned elsewhere, is it? Uh, the Warring Titans in that two episodes where they, uh, Jupiter Jazz 1 and 2. Yeah, but it's not, like, that is the only place where it is mentioned, and I feel like in that place it does more service to that secondary character whose name i forget uh it's gren gren i think that's more about him than actually i think i think if anything i think a vicious plays like a a very supporting role in that flashback but i'm saying outside that because that's a two-parter so that's why i just called it one episode it's two episodes but it is a sort of a two-parter yeah but i don't think the war in titan is even mentioned elsewhere so i think it had it been had it been like a little bit more to kind of actually show how the war on titan may have shaped vicious's personality i think i would have been i would have liked a little bit more and sort of i agree with you that 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 the implication is there that his trauma if you want to call it such is due to that but it's still i i still find him a more or less one note character yeah and and again that's why i think like shinichiro watanabe expanded on that and expanded on sort of spike's inner feelings for julia in the movie itself, uh, which he didn't, pro- which you could argue he didn't do enough of in the TV series. Would you make? Would you? Because you mentioned you would have liked it uh, if he, um, what's his name, Sp- Spike, uh, Spike uh, walked off with Julia in the end. Would you have found the series as satisfying if that final confrontation with uh, Vicious did not happen? Uh, adult me, yes. You know, like. Uh, I there are a couple of episodes where Spike, that like throughout the series, Spike is fatalistic and whatever happens happens, and he yeah. finds himself thrown into dangerous situations, and he's always reacting to something. And Julia's built up as such a huge thing, like uh, he you know, speaks. He's a femme fatale. Yeah, he speaks of her in whispers, and everybody's like, "Who's this Julia character?" And then we don't get too much of her if. Like he met Julia and like uh, actually managed to cherish her, and then the two of them ran away. 
and live life of mushroom farmers somewhere. That would have been a fantastic ending, just to sort of break the neo-noir aspect of the film, uh, of the TV series, and to show how much his character's grown. Because there are moments where like um, characters do defy fate, like in the episode Wild Horses, where Spike's like uh, in the swordfish, he's in the atmosphere, he's burning up, and uh, his friend comes by in a space shuttle to race, uh, rescue him. And, you know, it's like Wild Horses was just one of those standalone episodes that uh, people might ignore. But, like, for world building and for the sense that you can actually defy fate, it was uh, perfect. I loved it. Yeah, I liked that episode too. So, yeah, I would have, like, as an adult, as someone who's like, quit while you're ahead, because I'm no longer a reckless kid. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would have loved it if Spike could have just walked away with Julia. That would have been like a uh, much more satisfying end. Like, ah, this is why you've been focused on Julia. Now you're really appreciating her. Okay. Sort of logically, I agree with you, but uh, I think it would have been because that that would have been a huge Chekhov's gun that just did not go off <laughs> because that final confrontation between Spike and Vicious. It's sort of it's built up so much throughout the entire series that it, it's yeah, hard. It's fated. Yeah, it's hard to end the series without like that. It would be there would be riots on the streets. I feel like, <laughs> like the ending of Game of Thrones or or the ending of Evangelion, who is uh, just disappointed millions. I, I didn't mind that ending actually. I quite liked it. Everybody give a round of applause to Shinji for overcoming his mental issues. You talking about the movies or the series? Series. Because the series doesn't, I mean, I don't think that happens in the series. The series has just those two philosophical, like, uh, it's all the bizarre episodes. It's all the characters questioning him. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And then there's like a round of applause at the end as he manages to struggle through his problems. It's been a while since I watched Evangelion. I've got the, like, uh, box set, but I just haven't felt the desire to rewatch it. Yeah, I have to rewatch the new ones eventually. But anyway, going back to to Cowboy Bebop, I like you mentioned sort of you threw the word neo noir in there, and I think this is often sort of mar uh, spoken of as a blend of western and science fiction, which definitely is. But I would say noir has an equal share in that mix because it's just as much noir as it is a western as it is a science fiction. Yeah, the, the sci fi western, like we're on the new frontier, and you've got like big corporations acting like, I don't know, um, robber barons or cattle barons. They're using their money and influence to uh, subvert the law. But you also find elements like that in noir films and like authorities are corrupt. You can't trust anybody. There are femme fatales and um, people have got shady backgrounds as well. And just the style of the characters. And also, especially Jet Black's episodes, which as a teenager, I didn't find interesting at all. As an adult, I really got into because they grounded the series in that neo-noir genre. Yeah, I mean, he's he's just out of a neo-noir textbook. He's a cop, a, a fallen cop. Yeah. That uh, with corrupt, uh, his partner was corrupt and he was betrayed by his partner and whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's just all goes into world building where it's another recognizable element um, and uh, it adds more depth to the world of Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. And of course, there is the other big part of the, that the show is known for that I didn't I didn't care for much initially, but now I love is the endless references to mostly pop culture and mostly pop culture that are directly related to the genre that the um, series is uh, sort of based on. But I didn't I, I'm not as familiar with the Western genre, so I, I have to be honest, I didn't catch as many Western references except like sort of the generic 
uh, Western like feel to it. But otherwise, there's so many. There's Star Trek references. There is, uh, you know, the first episode, the guy's name is Asimov, which is uh, based on the writer. There's so many Bruce Lee references. Alien. Uh, Alien. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the one in the, in the episode that the, this made me laugh, the episode that they introduced Edward. Mm. So the, the one guy's name is Yuri Kellerman. And I don't know if you remember, but there was, used to be a guy called Yuri Geller. Yes, he could bend spoons. Yes, he was a big, 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 very all the time in TV. I remember seeing him. So he's he's just there. I just I, I made me laugh. And also, MPU is sort of obviously based on Hal. Hmm. I I red dots. <laughs> Don't I can't open the doors. <laughs> yes. So the guy, the guy in um, in Jupiter Jazz, Glenn. What's his name? Gren. 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 Yeah. Great. He carries a saxophone case the whole time, and and that reminded me. What's that movie with the guy that carries a guitar case That's, the whole time? Um, Antonio Banderas. Um, Is it Desperado? Desperado. What's that movie? Yeah. That's the first yeah. episode as well, isn't it? Because yeah, he has true, to look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So there's that that reference it, as well. New Tijuana and uh, yeah, the mean yeah. streets of I Gandhi. Even, <laughs> I think they only say new Tijuana once. Otherwise, they just call it TJ or Tijuana. Yeah, which I thought I don't know. It was just it's just such a such a silly silly like reference for a science fiction uh, story, but it completely makes sense. Yeah, and then there's the whole this black exploitation episode, which also has a reference to like a, a western. I think it's a jungle western where one of the characters is carrying a coffin around with him. Yes, yes, yeah. You're right. You're right. And there is the Godard. There's Godard references. The most notable being Pierre Lefou, which is on a, a name. Uh, one of his of films, a, yeah. of, of a Godard film, which actually, coincidentally, was my favorite Godard film for a while. But admittedly, I've not seen that many Godard films. So, so it's... Oh, and there's also, like, the final, like, every gunplay uh, episode is a riff on the heroic bloodshed genre. John, John Who, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Reference. There's the ghost in the. There's some ghost in the shell references in that episode with the mind cult. Okay, I didn't notice uh, this. Well, yeah, the brain, the the guy. I mean, the uh, the idea that you will uh, sort of leave your oh, brain your soul online. Yes, yeah. online. I mean, it's it's a very vague reference, but it's and then the guy, the guy who controls it is an artificial being who sort of controls people. He doesn't control them by hacking into them. He controls them by brainwashing them through. TV way, radio waves, but it's sort of like he's kind of like the puppet master in Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, it just—I mean, it's vague correction. There is another part that made me laugh is uh, the whole the episode, one of the episodes about Phase uh, Past, Speak Like a Child, where they find a Betamax tape, <laughs> and you know, I wasn't around for this, but there was—I—I I, I have heard stories that there was a huge fight between the VHS people. And the Betamax people and VHS won. Uh, apparently, Betamax was the most efficient. Yeah, and you'll hear Betamax people always say that. Well, it's it sucks because Betamax was so much better than VHS. <laughs> uh, and it sounds like to me like the director was like, "Damn it, I have to make, I have to say my piece about this. It's not fair <laughs> that VHS." So it sounded like someone had a bone to pick, and they said, "I'll just insert it in the episode because it just sounds such a." Such a, like an out of episode moment where the guy just stops everything and explains the history between VHS and Betamax, how Betamax was better, but VHS won or whatever. And in the lead up to that conversation, he's watching, I think it's Beverly Hills 90210. And he's like... Yeah, well, it's, it's something inspired from that. I don't yeah. think it's a direct 
uh, a direct ripoff, but I don't you know. See, I, I've never seen it, so I don't. Yeah, you see the names. I think it's like Jason Priestley and Shannon Dorsey, like plays on yeah. those names. There's uh, the guy in the second episode, Abdul Hakim, ah, uh, who's uh, jo- yeah, Bruce Lee, Game of Death. Yeah, but what's uh, what's uh, the guy's name? Kareem basketball Abdul player. Jabbar. Jabbar. And he has yeah, a, he yeah, has I... a column on the Hollywood Reporter actually. Who? A Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Oh, what, what about what? Uh, various issues. I think he won an award. Oh, okay. I thought you meant. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, he's he's active. I, I thought you meant he has something about this specifically. Oh, okay, no. Maybe he has uh, watched the episode and commented on it. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. But yeah, so there's so many references that you can just like spend the whole episode, um, kind of like picking out in every episode. I'm sure there are more that we've missed, or you know, they're just we didn't recognize. I th- yeah, I think it's like as Shinichiro Watanabe has said that like his generation was really inspired by international media. Like they were really getting into foreign films, and um, I think he wanted to like direct French New Wave films when he first got into uh, um, making um, media. And he's got uh, a variety of writers, uh, a lot of women, and I can imagine they're all bringing in their favorite references and favorite spins on things to make these unique episodes. Like a lot of the episode, like every episode is like a standalone story in itself, apart from Jupiter's Jazz part one and two and the final two episodes. Yeah. And he's and, uh, used that structure with uh, later series like Space Dandy as well, where he gives free reign to writers and directors to come up with something. And he sort of marshals them all together. And Samurai Champloo. Yeah. Uh, each episode of Samurai Champloo is a spin on a Jedi Geki tale, uh, just given a hip-hop remix. Yeah. And, to, you know... Speaking of the music, almost I think almost not quite every episode, but almost every episode of Cowboy Bebop is a song, usually from like some '60s new age rock band or whatever. Mm. Most most of which I'm not familiar with. Well, sympathy not, for the that... devil is like the most obvious one. Yeah, all all of them. Like I think Honky Tonk Women and uh, I I don't know. I'm I'm terrible. I'm ter- Bohemian Rhapsody, Wild Horses. Yeah. Uh, look, the real fog blues. You said Bohemian Rhapsody, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. They're a play on something, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's usually also music references inside the episodes. Yeah. So okay, so let's talk about. So we talked about the inspiration. Let's talk about sort of the characters and uh, and like I said, I I, I really like the standalone episodes this time more than I like the arc episodes. Although I do quite enjoy sort of like the. Uh, as you mentioned, the the episodes about and there's I think only two episodes about Jet. I do enjoy that because they do actually lean on the noir aspect a lot more, and I enjoy that. Noir is one of my favorite genres. Phase uh, Valentine's, I I do like that. I like the science fictional aspect of that as well. The sort of the the cryogenic uh, mm. aspect and sort of her being lost, sort of being sort of like struggling for an identity. And I think a lot of the show's themes. Resolve, revolve around people struggling to find their identities. Mm. Uh, I don't necessarily quite understand Justify her leaving. Um, I understand that is explored in the movie more. Uh, in terms of Faye. Faye, yes. Oh, no, that's not... Exp- like, Faye, Jet, and Ed take a real backseat to Spike in the movie. Oh, I see. That's unfortunate. Because, I don't know, I felt the end of that episode, that sort of, like, before the finale, is kind of like, you know... Both Edward 
And Edward doesn't even appear in the finale, does he? I don't think so. No. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I felt that was just a, 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 a not a great way to sort of separate the characters and kind of finish their arcs. Yeah, I think the movie takes place before episode 23, Brain Scratch. In the movie, you've got the, uh, let's say, Big Shot, the bounty hunting program. And then in episode 23, uh, Brain Scratch, um, you see Big Shot has been cancelled and like uh, the hosts announce it live on air. So, Yeah, and the, the, the woman complains that she'll talk with her agent or something. Yeah, she totally drops her fake accent and uh, she punches her co-host. Yeah, that's a joke in the, well, sort of, sort of in the, uh, I'll mention this later, in the Netflix version. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's like it happens right away. <laughs> they don't wait to bring that in. Yeah, I, yeah. So, yeah, I love the way these jokes in this. Like a character will casually mention a line, like Faye will say, I, uh, "I'm a woman, I'm delicate," and then like twenty minutes down the line, she'll have to do something delicate, and she's like, "I'm not delicate. I can't do this." Yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly lighthearted. The, I mean, it's it's also again like we we all threw I. I through around all the genres that is based on, but a big one is also comedy. It is mostly a comedy, an action comedy, in fact. And there's a few moments that are very heavy on the drama. Mm. Uh, sometimes uh, even on the melodrama, sometimes, not too often. But uh, for the most part, it is a comedy. Mm. And in- that includes sort of like like even one-liners, like the example I just mentioned with Faye, the, the whole like sort of... Uh, uh, running joke about them not having anything good to eat. Yeah, and was it was it bell peppers and beef? Yeah, but without beef. Mm. Yeah, which is I didn't re- I didn't I never knew it was actually a dish bell peppers and beef, but apparently it is something. Or like one episode where um, Spike can only eat Cowboy Andy brand food after he's defeated Cowboy Andy, and he's bragging about doing it. You can tell that he's so disappointed that just Andy gave up <laughs> and because he didn't win. Yeah. He didn't win. He didn't win. He just, he was, you know, he was just handed, handed victory. And I think, I, I think you, you were right when you mentioned that that also showcases personality very well because it, uh, it, you know, shows how disappointed he is. And he doesn't say this. And obviously, I think it's treated with some levity. But it is, you know, he would have rather killed Andy. I think that's what I think we get out of that episode. Yeah. Or defeated him in some way. Spike's trying really hard in that fight. (laughs) The flying kick he does is phenomenal. (laughs) And then Andy just inadvertently smacks him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of slapstick comedy. A lot of uh, great use of animation for facial expressions as well. Uh, Spike's constantly on the hunt for food, so he's stuffing things in his mouth, and that also comes up in the in the live act in the Netflix one as well. Um, but one thing, sort of one thing that kind of I'm sure I've realized this before, but it kind of stood out to me this rewatch is I was trying to looking at all these standalone episodes and also trying to tie them with the characters, and you can sort of make the case that every standalone episode is about the main characters plus one. Usually, sort of like Jupiter Jazz is about Gren, and uh, uh, what's the other one? The the first episode it's about the woman, Isaac, uh, as Asimov. No, yeah, Asimov is the main antagonist, but I would say the neck, the sort of co protagonist is the, his his girlfriend or yeah. wife, whatever she is. Uh, and she is because she's 
the one that actually makes the... I mean, Spike is a spectator in that final, final scene. She's the one that actually takes things into her hands. And and that's actually coincidentally is also the the first episode of the that's the same the same story in the first episode of the Netflix one. I'm throwing that around just to make the connection. I'm not spoiling anything because it's just I'm just giving broad strokes, but but it, sort of every episode in the original in the 1998 anime is about people who either have nothing to gain or people who have nothing to lose. Yeah, it's like um the like stuff happens to the Bebop crew for the most part. They, they find themselves caught up in ongoing dramas and uh, it's kind of like you're observing these, uh, they're observing, we're observing the Bebop crew observing these people leading broken lives. Exactly. And there's, I, so I wrote this down that they, everybody lives on the fringes of nihilism, that they just don't care. Yeah. Like you said, they've got nothing to lose. So they're going to extremes to do things. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or either, or just... The, They've either nothing to lose, so they were willing to die for something. That's where the action, that, that's sort of like the course of why Spike needs to get the, where the violence comes from, but also sometimes nothing to gain, so they've just given up. Or they've been pushed into a place because they've been marginalized by society so much. Like um, Ganymede Elegy, where uh, uh, Jet's ex-girlfriend, uh, her boyfriend is pushed to murder, and that makes him a bounty. Because times are really hard, like the, the depiction of the different worlds where they're like Ganymede, there's like uh, economic tough times. New York uh, on Mars, it's like a land of opportunities, but also full of danger as well. Yeah, and that's I think that's one episode where I think it one of the few episodes where things end positively because you know things kind of work out in the end. Yeah, it's like Jet can get some catharsis by confronting his past, and then. He throws the watch in the river. It's kind of like he's letting go. He and now he's got an answer. He can let go. Yeah, and everybody lives. <laughs> yeah, and of course, sort of like you know, like uh, the Jupiter Jazz was also, I think, a, a, an interesting episode because I think two people die in that one. Well, there's Gren, which is again another character with literally nothing to lose because he's going to die soon. And, so he's yeah. he's kind of like the the sole purpose of his life is and and you're going to say the other guy, the other yeah. person. Shin. Is it Which Shin is, or Lin? Sh Lin. And his brother is Chin. Yeah, okay. Right, yeah. But Lin is, you know, he sort of... I mentioned the issue of identity that comes sort of big, and it's all, 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 also a big thing in existential, but he sort of, like, substituted his personal identity for an identity with the... Is it the Red Dragon Syndicate? Yeah. And he lives to serve them. And he die. You can argue he dies for Vicious, or he dies for the Syndicate. Oh, and that's what Vicious warns him about. It's like, when the time comes, be prepared to kill me. It's like, don't lose your life for nothing. So do you think that sort of gives gives Vicious some something positive about his personality, that he is sort of like, is kind of like Spike, he's sort of not interested in the syndicate anymore, but is it just purely, purely because he just, he wants to run things as opposed to having, being ordered by someone else? Or does he actually see something, you know, philosophically wrong with blindly following the syndicate, because the syndicates are, sort of, it's not just his syndicate, there are various syndicates as I understand it, but it's, you know, the Red Dragon syndicate is the most, uh, the most prevalent, right? Yeah, there's the Blue Snake syndicates, and there's mention of the European syndicate as well. Uh, that's actually Europa, this moon of uh, Jupiter, I, I thought that was a nice, nice wordplay. Yeah, 
Um, like when it, with the episodes with Vicious, he's always butting heads with the head honchos of the Red Dragon Syndicate, and it's like he wants to make a change from the old ways where people are shackled to like duty, and um, like he's got a nihilistic and very violent streak towards him, so he's willing to go all the way in replacing them and taking over. Yeah. So. I don't want to. I don't want to do you know like a top five or a top ten, whatever. Because I, I don't. Know, I would have a, a lot of hard time uh, picking some. But what are your favorite episodes in the series? What are some of your favorite episodes, and what what exact what is it about them that you like a lot? Uh, Stray Dog Strut because it's just gen- genuinely funny, uh, and great great music by Yoko Kano and Seatbelts, um, especially the chase where um, Abdul Hakim. Spike, the dog catchers, uh, are all after Ein, and um, like that's one of my favorite tracks from the show itself. I I occasionally sing it to myself when I'm in work, uh, and yeah, just the slapstick comedy elements to that show, uh, to uh, that chase in particular, really got me into the show. Uh, I actually like <sighs> this is hard. Um, I'm looking for all the different episodes uh, on Wikipedia. Um, get- you don't have to. You don't, I mean, you don't have to limit yourself to a certain number. So even if you're not sure about something, you might as well just say it. Yeah, Gateway Shuffle and uh, Boogie Woogie Feng Shui. I thought like really interesting aspects of how gate travel works. Gateway Sh- uh, Shuffle has one of the nastiest endings for a bunch of characters as well. That one was the eco terrorist, right? The the the, the old yeah, lady. Yeah, very very violent opening. Yeah. 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 And uh, Ballads of Fallen Angels, especially for the Greenbird finale. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's that I would include that one, but again, not not necessarily because of the Spike arc, because I've said I've kind of grown tired of that. But the visual, the, the actual aesthetics of that episode are just, and the the clear references to John Woo and the fight in the church. Yeah, uh, the final that I mean that's an iconic image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, and. Uh... I, I understand Netflix have adapted that, right? Like from a promotional. Yes, material. it's it's right in the titles. I'm not spoiling anything. It's that image is right in the title sequence. They've been putting videos out. They've been putting videos out on Twitter, so it's got to be in there. Um, yeah, Piero Le Fou, which is one of the ones I keep returning to because there's that fantastic opening where Spike just stumbles upon this assassination, and there's no music. And like the action is so fantastically delivered with like point of view changes, uh, wide shots, and uh, close ups. And uh, that's such a fantastic episode. Sorry, yeah, it's just like I had to say it. It's such a fantastic episode. Yeah, and like uh, the the like with Piero Lefou, they could have heavy exposition to explain his background, but instead they use a montage, really menacing music, really menacing imagery. And it like it's worth a million words that could have been spoken. And I so and that's that's I think uh, Pure Lefou is also exemplifies what I love about the show is because there's no setup, there's no build up. Spike just stumbles into him. I yeah, it to me it felt like it's the world of Bebop is much bigger than Spike and the syndicates. Like there are all these people out there, and he just happens to run into Piero Lefou. Yeah, and I think that's. That's I think that's one thing that I I think the the Netflix miss the Netflix show kind of misses the point on it that I think that a lot of Cowboy Bebop is and that's what I said about sort of the in, in, inherent nihilism of the show is that of a lot of things things just happen 
There's no, there's no rhyme or reason for them. And I think that's sort of the, the style of a lot of episodes, and include this one, sort of exemplifies that a lot. It just just happened. There's no, there's no bigger lead that led him to Pierre LeFou. There's no big investigation or anything. It's just he was walking on the street one day and kind of kind of ran into this guy and could not let him go. Yeah, yeah, couldn't shake him. Yeah, exactly. And again, it just like it makes the world of Cowboy Bebop just that much more exciting as opposed to what a, a normal drama might do, which is bring everything back to the syndicate, which is probably like one of the least interesting aspects of the show. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I haven't gotten... I, I think Pierre LeFou is in the Netflix one. I haven't gotten that episode because like, I've only watched two. I would, I suspect they'll make a, a much bigger deal uh, of him than the actual show does. I uh, like I saw promotional material for it, and Piero did not have the rotund look to him, and he's so menacing he in the anime. He he has the face, yeah. but not the the bouncy look. Like he's just floating, and he kicks Spike's ass just by floating around. And yeah, when he pulls open his coat, he's just got an array of weapons. That's fantastic. And, uh, yeah, other episodes, Wild Horses, which you previously mentioned, Toys in the Attic, uh, Jamming with Edwards. So, uh, yeah. So, and Sympathy for the Devil, Sympathy for the Devil, can't forget. Oh, yeah. So, Toys in the Attic, I think I, I kind of I kind of hinted towards this when we talked about Shamrai Shampoo in that episode. Uh, Toys in the Attic is actually one of my least favorite episodes of, this, of the series, simply because of, like, I just, I don't know, it's just so weird. You know, like, the, I mean, I, I don't think this is as bad as the equivalent episode in Samurai Champloo because that's entirely inexplicable. With this one, you can make the case that they were headed to Mars, I think, with an auto, autopilot. Yeah, and they... And, uh, and Edward was fine, so... Well, no, I think it's like each... Ep- like, there is no redundant episode in this. There's great world building in every episode. And I think the cause of Toys in the Attic, the alien in Toys in the Attic, is like they had this, like, shrimp or this sea creature from Jupiter that Spike had forgotten about. And it's mentioned in um, uh, previous episodes where Jet's like, oh yeah, it tastes terrible, but people eat it for status. And it comes back like uh, six episodes down the line and it's mutated into this terrible monster. And Edward eats it in the end. So, yeah, yeah. It's, so it all comes... <laughs> it's one of those... It's a standalone episode the, and uh, it you can... I suppose people can view it as like throwaway, but th- like it just continues with world building. It's really funny, um, and uh, yeah. Uh, and and the other the other thing is that it was never you know made the case that the infection was fatal. So so that's why I think the the ending of the episode is not necessarily you know inexplicable because you know maybe they just got better. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but I still, I don't know, something about it just doesn't sit well with me. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what it is. It just feels like, I don't know. But I can see how other people might like it a lot. Yeah. See, yeah, so those, those are my favorite episodes. Like, when I was younger, Wild Horses didn't impress me that much. But because of, like, uh, the idea of defying fate and Spike uh, being rescued by uh, people, that one actually moved me to tears. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I I have to for my favorites. I, I of course I have to throw the first episode in because of you know so sort of how how important it was into actually hooking me into the series. I think objectively probably wouldn't even make the top ten. Not that it's a bad episode by any means, but I just I, I think it was uh, 
a very just very appealing episode to me personally. I liked uh, Ballad of Fallen Angels for the reasons that we just mentioned, uh, mostly visually. I, I really enjoyed that episode. I liked the episode with the kid. Uh, I forget the title of that one. Uh, the immortal kid. Oh, sympathy for the devil. Sympathy for the devil. Okay, yeah, that's. Uh, I would forget. And that's the. Uh, I think that's a great episode either way, but I do like it because it sort of it gives a glimpse into what happened. Yeah, the gate explosion. Yeah, and in in parallel to that, there is the episode with the chess. Is that Bohemian Rhapsody? Is that Bohemian? I don't remember. I, I, the, the episode titles are just going to fade away. But the one, the, the guy who was a chess genius and had set up the trap. Yeah, and it turns out that he, he's got Alzheimer's, so he no longer remembers the trap. Yeah, so it's, it, is, it is Bohemian Rhapsody, yes. Yeah. And I, they don't mention the game, but he quits the corporation, the gate corporation, because there was a flaw in the gates, but they refused to... Is that why the gate exploded on Earth? Yeah, I, no, it exploded on the moon, which shattered but yeah, it in I mean, half. That, that's what I mean, yeah, yeah. So that gate, is that why it exploded yeah. because of that flaw? Yeah, he, he flagged the flaw, and he wanted maintenance done on it, and the corporation was no, like, no, let's push ahead. But they never, they never, they never explicitly say that that's why the Earth, the Moon Astrogate, I think they call it, yeah, the Astrogate on the Moon exploded. They don't never explicitly say, but I think the episode kind of implies that that uh, that that's the reason because of the flaw that they the gates inherently had in them. I think it's literally like Jets talking about his backstory and like he uncovered a flaw, and then the next thing you see is like the image of a gate exploding. So yeah, it makes that implication. Okay, I I I must have missed that, but yeah, I mean, I think it's you know he doesn't he doesn't have to spell it out, but he, and I think that I don't know that's sort of that kind of world building. I I really love that, so that's why I really love these two episodes in particular. Also, their their episodes, uh, it's, it's believable corporate malfeasance as well. Yes, yes, and there's a, a, a another interesting one of the characters in Bohemian Rhapsody. I think his name is Deep Blue. Is that the computer you're thinking about? Yeah, so Deep Blue is the name, the first computer who was able to beat uh, the the chess grand the nation the world the international chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov. Yeah. Uh, so the first time that that happens, of course, today that happens all the time because computers are so much better. I know. It, <laughs> but uh, but at the time that was the first. I think in the early '90s, the computer was built in '89. I think in the early '90s it was, and that was a, a nice difference to it. Not that that's a big deal, but I I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, again, jamming with Edward. Of course, it's a it's an interesting episode. Uh, the reference to two thousand one are certainly appreciated, and getting an insight into what Earth looks like. Yes, exactly. And sort of like the, I think that's the first time where we actually get to experience the asteroids because Edward is listening on the radio and he says uh, like twenty percent chance for minimal chance for asteroids, and then like five minutes later, <laughs> chance for asteroid shower upgraded or something like yeah. that. Boom. I what else? Pierre Lefou is um we already talked about that it's for so for those reasons it's also one of my favorite episodes and Brain Scratch the one about the mind cold is uh is also an episode that I liked a lot. There's some great imagery in that where Spike's tracking down Faye and he goes to like that abandoned building and everything's like the colors drained out of it as he walks yeah. through the corridor. And that's another one where we don't, you know, like the episode just starts with Faye having joined the cult. It's not, 
you know, there's no setup, there's no build up. It's just it's that's the state of things, and he has to deal with it. Spike and Jet have to deal with that. I I feel like when you get to the that episode, you see the Bebop crew work together, fully work together. Everybody's contributing yeah. something, and it's just before like the tragedy has to happen and they break up. Yeah, but I mean, there's also I mean, I'm saying there's no setup being up for why Faye decided to join that cult. It's just I mean, we we know why, but there's no it's not shown. She's just we're already starting at where she's already made that decision. Yeah, we don't need to know. It's just get into the action. Yeah, yeah. and there's like an like an uh, like a very I thought a very uh, prescient line in there where the guy, the kid, and it's it's such a it's such a, an interesting reveal at the end that it's just a kid who is who is you know sour that he can't walk anymore that he can't live in the world anymore yeah he's like comatose right yeah and isn't that sort of like also ghost in the shell 2 uh i still haven't rewatched it i think that's also in there i don't know anyway but that's such a it's such a such a like you know like also silly but brilliant sort of motivation for he's just a kid who wants to play but he can't because he's comatose and he's never gonna walk again yeah and he's created like this world and he's essentially trying to make more people to join him because he wants friends. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's as silly as that, but it's with terrible consequences. But he also has a line, which I found it incredibly impression. He says, do you know what the greatest invention of all time is? It's television because it can make you do whatever it wants you to do. And I think if you substitute television with social media or just media in general... I think that's an incredible prediction that they made in 1998 for what the world was heading into. Yeah, like confirmation bias and things like that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this is like, like in the show, there's almost this like psychic or magical property that this set has. Uh, but it's, you know, like it's, if you take that as a metaphor, it, it is not that far from the, the truth because, you know, with a few tricks, with, you know, the, the whole thing about confirmation bias, it can. It is literally just as simple as brainwashing. Yeah, I think they would like um, having recently rewatched the X Files. There are a spate of episodes where it's like TV's um, uh, manipulating how people think about things. So that that seems like a turn of the century type of thing going on. Yeah, and it's like such a also like a '90s picture of what the internet is like with like. Ed getting in and like exploring like this 3D space. It's, and it's all the that. sea. Was, yeah, the sea of information and like so the sea of electrons and it's so yeah uh, like so nine that was a like you know not 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 uncommon like in the nineties especially a lot of Japanese media and other media in the nineties. No, no, yeah. These days people have to deal with the poor UI of Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um. What else? Oh, the one thing uh, I mentioned that one of my favorite episodes is uh, "Sympathy for the Devil" with a kid. But I don't know. It's just I always I I, I was kind of found it not a great choice to make him actually Im- impervious to bullets. Like from a, just the science fiction of it just bothered me a little bit. Like I get he something happened in the fabric of space time and he is not aging anymore. Mm. But a bullet should still kill him. Mm. I don't know. I thought I thought that was a silly. I don't know. I just took me out a little bit. But it certainly doesn't doesn't ruin the episode or anything like that and it has one of the most iconic endings as well yes absolutely absolutely it's so 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 tragic too Mm. and i think sympathy for the devil is also a song that's by uh the rolling stones i think 
Yeah, yeah. I, I never heard. I don't think I, I, I'm sure I've heard of it, but it's not it's not something that I listen to regularly. I, yeah, uh, having, yeah, I think that was one of the episodes that was taken off air in America due to nine eleven. Actually, a lot were from what I, or a lot were or delayed from like just reading on on uh, on Wikipedia because there's you know a lot of explosions of buildings in uh, yeah because and if you know if this was I mean it's not a big deal now but if this was airing right around nine eleven I can see how people might have been sensitive about something like that yeah New York is a major inspiration and in Cowboy Bebop the movie I I definitely sure you see the Twin Towers and that was released I'm pretty sure that was released just before the actual terrorist um event yeah there's there's even like a one of the characters is ted the bomber and like one of the buildings there's like a that he bombs is quite literally like two two towers that look that are identical that look very much like the twin towers yeah and yeah in cowboy bebop the movie they go to like an area of um the colony which is like um uh morocco and uh uh, like in the subtitles, you can see they're emphasizing sort of like the uh, certain uh, Islamic words like inshallah, and um, in the dub, that's just not mentioned at all. Ah, uh, I see. So it's like, see. yeah, I... sensitivities around that time. I can imagine, yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah, it's it's like looking at old media, like the real Ghostbusters. There's an episode where ghosts take over a jet plane. And they're flying directly at the Twin Towers itself, and the Ghostbusters have to like stop the jet plane from crashing into the towers. Like people, we like, we, I think people forget how much we took it for granted that these things would keep standing. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. But so, of course, like just to get a little bit into the Netflix live action adaptation. First, the first thing, there's already been a live action adaptation of cowboy bebop Uh oh and it's called firefly okay yeah western in space yeah i don't know if you've seen it i mean it's 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 not an adaptation there's it's different enough that it's a separate medium but it's also there's a lot of inspiration it has to be inspired from cowboy bebop because it's there's so many things that are similar about it yeah and I love that show. I don't know how you feel about it, but it's it is one of my favorite shows i I watched it at the time of broadcast um it was okay yeah I recommend it because I th- I think you would like it. it. Again, it's only one season, so it 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 can't be that much of a uh. It, it's not that much of an investment, and and I think that of course it was canceled before it could finish, so the the season just ends without a conclusion. No, it, but I think it got I thought a movie, the, Serenity. Yes, yes, but the film I think does a wonderful job at, at finishing the series. Okay, or at least gi- not finishing, giving some sort of closure. It's not like it 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 accomplished anything the series would plan to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, but it does do just give you closure. I mean, that's it is something. Yeah. Uh, but sort of obviously, like, obviously that doesn't count. So like the Netflix show is the first proper live a- action adaptation. So let me paint you a picture. I go on Netflix. I type the name of the show. I click on it, and like immediately as it starts, I notice there's something wrong with this. Can you guess what it is? Uh, it's not anime. <laughs> No, well, no, well, no, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't consider that necessarily wrong. I mean, because it obviously it's a different, like I, I knew that. It's an adaptation. Yeah. I won't go, I won't play this game for him. It's 50 minutes long. Oh yeah. Each episode is double the length of the anime itself. Yeah. The episodes vary in length. So some, so some are 50 minutes long, some are 45, 40, 39. So it varies, but it's generally a lot longer. And 
that I mean that doesn't necessarily say anything, but I, I I already mentioned that part of what I think is so great about the the and you mentioned this too is that every episode is like twenty two to twenty five minutes long. It's so tight, it's so well constructed, and there's like I think it adds to the whole sense of you know like of loss and nihilism because there's no time to get into lengthy explanation of setup. Things just happen and and the crew reacts and that's it. Yeah, I I suppose if that uh, length of fifty minutes. The writers have attempted to add more exposition. and It does, and it drags. And so the first episode is the first episode of the, of the anime. It's like the same story, more or less, yeah. but with so much more added to it that I, I think it's necessary. I'm not spoiling anything when I say that uh, Faye Valentine shows up in the first episode. So it doesn't show up right in the beginning, but she's there. So it's, it's, I hope that's not a spoiler. Uh, and the second episode is about Ted the Bomber. Okay. Remixing it. Yeah, so it's it's not in order. The first episode is the same, but the second episode is different, and it's it's longer. It's actually it it struck me as being a lot more violent than a lot more bloodier and a lot more cruel. And I think that might that may be a, an artifact of it being live action because even if it's the same level of violence, something you know, blood exploding in live action is feels a little bit more violent than sort of something in the cartoon. Yeah, animation gives you that distance. It's like a cushion. Ex- yeah, and I don't know I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not I'm not making a decision that it, I I think necessarily diminishes the live action adaptation, but it definitely gives it a different a slightly more cruel, slightly more cynical streak. Yeah. And it, I th- I don't know, Spike comes off as more cynical. Like he kind of there's a, a couple of instances where he just kills people in cold blood. Hmm. Um, there's more conflict between Spike and Jed because they definitely have to drag it out. And I don't know the the ending. the 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 first episode ends differently, not not too differently, but it ends differently. I think it sort of it completely misses the essence of what of what the sort of like the arc of that first woman is. Is she Esmeralda? Who? What's her name? Uh, Katarina. Katarina. Yes, they give her a backstory. Like she has a backstory. It's not very long. They don't spend a lot of time, but she has a backstory. Like I don't know. It it's not bad, but it's also like I feel like they missed the point. Yeah. Uh, for for a lot of it, the second episode I thought it was a little bit better better done. But again, it's they try to pan things out in certain sense. And so far, both episodes there's significant chunks where we kind of get into Spike's past a lot more frequently. Yeah, so it's they're going to expand upon the syndicate essentially, which is like yeah, the most or, obvious. or they're trying to make it part of every episode. Yeah, and it's like it's like they're trying to not like whereas in the anime, you know, like Vicious shows up out of nowhere in episode five. That's one of the things I liked about the anime that it like the brevity and how enigmatic it was. You just had like uh, images, and then you could form your own opinions, and that was all that was needed. Yeah, and they do exactly the same thing in the show, but. My point is that it, they kind of trying to build that up. Yeah. So there's vi- there's scenes with vicious in both episodes where he shows up, and we spike dreams. There's like the, all that stereotypical show where someone is dreaming about something and just they wake up suddenly. Mm. And so there's a lot of that. So they obviously if it's a 50 minute episode, they they have to add something. They can't just like you know like the original 20 minute episode. They can just like because it's the same story, but they have to pan it. So I don't know. I think that diminishes the show. I think the actors do a good job in portraying their characters. I will hold into my initial opinion that the, I think John Cho is not the great is not the greatest choice for Spike. But I honestly think that just mostly because I think it's a bit too old for Spike. Okay, 
I think that's my main problem. Otherwise, I think he does a great job. Spike's uh, like something like 27 in the anime, isn't he? I, I don't remember if they even say his age, but he's definitely, he seems very young. And same thing with uh, Vicious. Like, Vicious, I also thought he was, the actor who plays Vicious, I also thought he was too old. <laughs> like, they're both too old. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, that shouldn't be a problem. It just, I, I don't know. He seems like, I see, I see John Cho from like a certain angle do all these incredible acrobatic, acrobatics, and the next cut is his face. Like okay, this guy's old. I like it does. Like, he's not. He's not incredibly old. Okay, don't. I'm not. It's. I'm not trying to make a too big deal of it. But it, I don't know. I would. I would have liked a younger actor. What well, youth adds that devil may care attitude of Spike Spiegel. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And and I'm gonna. I think I was impressed enough. I thought there are good things about the adaptation. So I'm not. I don't want to completely poo-poo it. Yeah. There are there are good things about it that I think make it redeem it and uh, and I'm gonna finish it. In fact, I might just watch the next episode as soon as we're done recording this. Um, I'm after after having some lunch or with lunch. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Multitask. <laughs> uh, multitasking exactly. Eating and watching. But uh, I don't know. I I feel like they definitely missed the point on some. I I. I, I, I would not be opposed to changing things. But that's another thing. It doesn't feel like they've changed enough. It feels like it's such a... And that's the, the whole thing, the, the whole point that I made about the violence is that they kept so many things similar, but things don't necessarily translate from one medium to another. You have to change them enough so they make sense in one medium. But, you know, the style of the action is the same. The, the visual aesthetic is the same. There's the same colors almost, the same color palette. The intro is exactly identical, yeah. except Edward is not in the intro, so I'm, I'm wondering if his... I looked up on Wikipedia, and he's supposed to be in the show, because I, the, the actor is credited playing Edward, but he's not in the intro. You know how the ending of the introduction scene sequence shows the four panels with the characters? Yeah. That, that's not in the anime. The anime show... I mean, that's not in the Netflix. The Netflix show only shows three, so Faye, Spike, and uh, Jet. Okay. So they, they talk about having a season two, and maybe introducing Ed in that. Yeah. So, I don't know. Again, that, that doesn't bother that much because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with change. It's just how exactly they actually deal with it. And I think I've seen some promising stuff, but also a lot of things that I, I don't like as much about the, the Netflix show that I, 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 I don't think it will hold up as well, but I don't think it would necessarily be terrible too. Okay. Yeah, I've tried to avoid... As much as possible beyond sort of like uh, an interview with a producer as to uh, what direction he wants to take the show in. Like I've mentioned in previous episodes, like a criticism of like shows being too slavish to like uh, previous versions of something or certain films. Uh, do you think that's happening here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, th I think that part of it, I think it's, but also it's, it's, I mean, it's easy for me to go on it to, to talk about here and and go on about, oh, they didn't do this, they did that. But, like, I also, if I put myself in the creator's shoes, like, what were they supposed to do with it? It's like an impossible scene because if they made it too similar, there's going to be people like me complaining. And But if they made it too different, there's going to be another barrage of criticism, but, <laughs> hey, they didn't strict it. So it's it's like, a, it's a thankless job, honestly. I do yeah. feel for the creators behind the show. Yeah. Uh, and the the show, I mean, it's the cast again. I have a problem with John Cho's age. I have a problem with the uh, vicious's age. The actor who plays him. But other than that, I thought the casting was pretty good. I suppose the best way to look at it is that it's it's an adaptation. There's only so many things live action can do, and it's 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 its own beast. Yeah. So the 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 stories and the aesthetic behind the original anime were made were 
those choices were made having in mind that this will be an anime. Yeah. So someone didn't just come up with the aesthetic and then they decided it will be an anime. So say, okay, we're going to make an anime. That informs our decisions. And so that's why I think that sort of like things, there's, you cannot have a one-to-one translation when you're completely changing a medium. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. And so I, I would say that, yes, it is a problem, but I also, I, I do understand that there, like, I do feel for the producers and I do feel that there's, you know, that there's, they do have a thankless job and they, there's not much that they could have done to satisfy everyone. And I'm, I'm interested to see how it progresses. And, and uh, like I said, I, I think it's going to be okay. I don't think it's going to be great, but you know, I, I also don't want to completely uh, dismiss it right away. Yeah. Well, just lower expectations is the sort of thing going into it, I guess. Yeah. One, th- one thing that I know will keep bothering me is, like I said, it, it just, at times it does come off a little bit too more cruel, too cynical. I wish, I wish they just hadn't gone, because the, the, the first one, the, the original is violent, is dramatic, melodramatic sometimes, but it never comes off of as cynical. Mm. And I, th- I think the, uh, the, the, uh, the Netflix one does come off as cynical. Like, listen, it, it did to me. So I, I, I that's going to, I wish, I wish they kind of toned down that a little bit in the upcoming episodes. Okay. Well, this may be the closest we get to a live action adaptation because 20th Century Fox uh, owned rights to a movie and Keanu Reeves was attached to play Spike Spiegel. But that's been in development hell. It's supposed to come out in 2011. So, I mean, here's a, a groundbreakingly shocking idea. Why, why make remake? Why Netflix should remake Cowboy Bebop? Why don't they just give money to Shinichiro Watanabe to make a live action series? It's like, hey, will I, why, why rehash the same thing? Give someone an impossible task of adapting a legendary series. IP. Instead of just, hey, man. It's all IP. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm just, that's why I said it's, it's shocking. It's a shocking uh, idea. It's a pro- proposal. But wouldn't that be better? You know, hey, you know, uh, okay, maybe we can have both. Okay, sure. Because he was a consultant. So, hey, consult for us. Let's give this young guy who doesn't know what he's doing, or maybe he does know what he's doing. I don't know. Cowboy B, but we'll have that because that's going to give us, that's going to bring us money. Like the Death Note adaptation, which was terrible, but it still brought money because a lot of people would watch it anyway. Yeah. So that's fine. But hey, you, you've made this great thing. Make another great thing for us. So it'll be on Netflix. Make it in English. Make it in Japanese. Whatever. I think Watanabe does have an anime on Netflix. It's one... Produced like a Netflix original? Yeah, I think so. It's like... Okay, that's interesting. set on Mars and it's about these two... Uh, teenage girls who meet and form a band, I want to say, become singers. Is it Carol and Tuesday? Yes. Okay, interesting. I guess I'm just looking on Wikipedia. It doesn't seem to be to be Netflix. I think it's a uh, it's like it's it's English on Netflix, but I don't think it's produced by Netflix. Okay, they just bought the rights yeah. to it. Okay. Yeah, they're just distributing it. It's 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 Fuji, but it's licensed. They they yeah they bought the license to it. Yeah, okay for international distribution. Well, that's as close as Netflix got to. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, they can. I mean, they hey they threw money at the 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 guy behind Squid Game, and that paid off. So hey, you know they they definitely there's definitely something there. Yeah. Now he might not be interested because I don't think Shinichiro Watanabe can go to many Japanese studios, ask for money, and not get it. So maybe he's not interested. 
I don't know. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what his cachet is in the sort of Japanese anime industry. I don't know if he's interested in ever, you know, uh, doing something in live action himself as opposed to anime. Who knows? But uh, but it would be interesting. Yeah. Well, Hideaki Anno went into live action with Shin Gojira and the new Mask Rider. Is it Mask Rider or Ultraman? Cutie Honey. And there's one about the suicidal woman and the guy with an umbrella. I, I just remember the imagery. I can't remember the name of the film itself. Yeah, and I think, like, he, I mean, he's done live action, but, like, since early in his career, he, he was doing, like, low-budget live action stuff. So he's, so if he's, like, w- familiar with that genre, although I, I, I would argue none of them are as successful as Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I think we veered off the conversation. But yeah, so that's, I, I would recommend if you can get a Netflix free trial to watch it. And anybody in the audience, I, w- I do actually recommend, despite my criticism, which there are, I think are fair, I still would not say don't bother with it. I would say, yes, bother with it, watch it, because I do think they do some interesting stuff, but lower your expectations. So if you have a chance, you know, check it out. Okay. All right. So anything else about, I mean, there, I'm sure there are things that we can talk about Cowboy Bebop to, to Will Blue in the Face, but is there anything else that you wanted to bring up in, uh, in this episode, Jason? Yeah. Uh, so let's have a look. We've got uh, two video games based on the franchise. Okay, you sent me a few videos about them, but I haven't played any any of the video games. Well, yeah, Cowboy Bebop was uh, originally like uh, Bandai wanted to use it to sell spaceships, and um, like like toy spaceships. Yeah, and okay, once they saw what Watanabe was working on, they uh, one one part of Bandai abandoned the project and another part of Bandai jumped on board and in order to sort of make money on the anime they made uh they published um manga and uh they made games and they uh released CDs and there are two Cowboy Bebop video games uh one was released uh for the PlayStation in 1998 and it's an on-the-rail shooter where you pilot Spike Swordfish and it's got upbeat music I didn't hear any jazz or anything by Yoko Kano. Uh, the second game was released on PlayStation 2 uh, in 2005, and it's a brawler involving uh, different members of the cast, and it's got music by Seatbelts and Yoko Kano. And uh, uh, they look okay. Yeah. And I think Bandai has definitely made their money uh, over time from the, the franchise or the series. Mm. So they, I, I can't imagine they have too, too much to complain about. Mm. And this is one of the probably best received anime out there. Every like most fans of anime have heard of this. Uh, it's acted as a sort of gateway title into the medium for many people. And, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And at the time of its release, it was highly regarded. So, um, Animage, uh, uh, which is like a leading Japanese animation magazine, uh, run the Anime Grand Prix and. Uh, in 2000, uh, they named Cowboy. Oh, Cowboy Bebop won uh, best male character for Spike Spiegel and best voice actor for Faye Valentine's uh, voice actress uh, Megumi Hayashibara. And uh, in 2000, it won uh, the Seiyun Awards, which is like a big sci-fi award in Japan. Uh, it was named best dramatic presentation of the year, and um, it received. Uh, let's see. Uh, 13th Japan Gold Disc Award for Animation Album of the Year for Yoko Kano's music. And uh, yeah, Yoko Kano's music is incredible. Yeah, and I think I would argue that 
the, the, the one of the powers of Cowboy Bebop, especially early on, is that even, you know, there was no shortage of critics at the time who kind of looked at anime derisive, derisively as a non-serious or like art form. And I think Cowboy Bebop had that power to make even those types of critics kind of look at it with a, a, a more serious intentions. Yeah. Again, it's like got a certain maturity to it. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so uh, so we talked. Yeah, so it was definitely well received right from the start. It's not. It's all, it wasn't one of those that you know, like, kind of grew over time, like some well, often things do. But this one was, you know, a hit right from the start. And one thing that I think kind of has defined Shinjiro Watanabe's career is that he doesn't do. He's. A, I mean, I I don't think he's ever done live action. I think we already mentioned this, but I don't think he has. Has he? I don't think so. Yeah, but he's also only done, or at least mostly done original anime works he hasn't because you know the vast majority of anime are manga adaptations but i don't I think, think he's he... i i think kids on slope is based on a manga okay but bebop wasn't and samurai shampoo wasn't and i think space dandy wasn't yeah and um Zankyo no terror i think that was an uh an original as well okay yeah so it seems to be he seems to be you sort of like that seems to be right up uh his his alley yeah Ah, uh, Carol and Chusey, he actually created the manga and the TV series. Yeah, so, yeah. So he he do like he does like to sort of like create original material. Material. Yeah. All right. So anything else about this? Uh it's it's a brilliant show. Um, and uh, yeah, enjoy getting back into it and uh, getting uh, nostalgia hits as well as uh, learning to reappreciate it again. Yeah, same. And I actually, I, I didn't binge watch it this time. I sort of like watched, you know, a couple of episodes every day. Uh, sometimes a few more just to to, to, to kind of, you know, watch it in my own person. It was very enjoyable watching it that way. Hmm. Obviously, or, or, you know, at the airtime, people would have watched it an episode per week over the course of a, of an entire year. And I think it, it, it is very much, you know, designed for that kind of viewing. Hmm. All right. So I think that is it. Uh, for episode on the 1998 anime uh, Cowboy Bebop and all its related content. Uh, is there anything you'd like to close with, Jason, before we end the episode? Uh, it was great being able to uh, talk about a TV anime. <laughs> we should... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, 1997, 98, were, uh, no slouch as far as years go, there were no slouches in terms of what was being produced at the time. But Cowboy Bebop is far and above all of the competition. So, you know, anybody listening to this, definite recommendation. I agree. I absolutely agree. Okay, so that that was uh, the special of Heroic Purgatory. Uh, we are not sure when season three will start again, probably sometime next year, but we will probably do another special. And this time it will probably be our Christmas special. We have no idea what that will be. I don't know if you have any ideas jason i haven't thought that far ahead i don't i make things up as i go along like spike spiegel exactly exactly but we have about a month to figure it out so i think we'll get there uh but until then uh we hope you enjoy listening to our episodes bills feel free to check our website out and comment on any of the episodes if you have any thoughts questions uh concerns or anything like that please feel free to leave a comment or email us directly otherwise i'll see you in space <laughs>